0: Story number 16, Our Run-In with Boston Edison. A couple of years after we moved into our house in Wayland, that was 1955, by the Sudbury River, Bill and I looked out the window early one morning to see a group of Boston Edison men conferring together, while one of them drove a stake into the ground beside the road just across from our house. "'We went out to see what was going on.' "'Don't you know,' one of them said, "'we're constructing a high-tension line.' "'Oh,' said Bill, "'where will the line go?' "'Right down the middle of the river,' "'replied the spokesman of the group "'with proud emphasis. "'Well, what will it look like?' "'Oh, it won't be too bad.' The towers holding the lines will be made entirely of wood. They will be tall H-frames. Don't worry. You'll get used to them. Everybody does. And he went back to pounding in his stake. Bill and I retreated into the house and started making phone calls. Yes, it was true. Boston Edison was planning to construct about 10 miles of high-tension towers to go right down the river, our river. There was a public hearing before representatives of the Department of Public Utilities to take place at Sudbury Town Hall the next week. We would be welcome to attend, but it would be of no use to go except to get information. Plans were already made, and no doubt the DPU Will the Department of Public Utilities, will rubber-stamp them. This is simply a formality, the operator reported. Little did she or Boston Edison know the power of the quiet, determined, and united residents of Concord, Sudbury, Wayland, Carlisle, all the towns affected by this proposed construction, led by Bill, among others, and a crafty old and withered lawyer by the name of John Bazell. The citizens came together and united with the recently formed Sudbury Valley Trustees and SUASCO, the Sudbury, Assabet and Concord Rivers Association, active still today in the annual Riverfest celebration in June Petitions were signed, flocks of residents attended public hearings, town votes in opposition were registered, numerous local meetings were held. At each successive meeting involving Boston Edison representatives, their cockiness diminished and the stoop of their shoulders increased as Mr. Bazell, Bill, and others patiently whittled away at Boston Edison's self-righteous position until the last meeting. I don't know the date. We noticed that in attendance at that meeting was Harry Rice, owner of a large farm in Sudbury that boasted a snowmobile track in the winter and an airplane landing field in better weather. His land abutted the Sudbury River, and he had a keen interest in the outcome of these talks. His house, like ours, was an antique colonial. In fact, we admired his doorway so much that when ours became rotted at the bottom, Bill meticulously copied Harry's. But that's off the subject. During the hearing, Bazell called his new witness to the stand. After Harry was sworn in, Bazell spoke to him. "'I notice you have a box there, Harry.' "'Yes,' said Harry, displaying an old shoebox. "'What do you have in the box, Harry?' queried Bazell, while the Boston Edison team wanted them to get on with it. "'Oh, just a few trinkets,' replied Harry. "'Well, would you like to show them to us, Harry?' "'Sure,' said Harry, and he took from the box shards of pottery, arrowheads, an Indian axe head, and a few bones. The Boston Edison team looked dismayed. "'Where did those come from, Harry?' Oh, from an old Indian burial ground down there by the river, replied Harry. Well, the Boston Edison team sank their heads into their hands. It was the critical and final arrow in the citizens' quiver, since it is well known that no public edifices can be constructed on or over burial grounds. That was the last meeting, as I recall. Boston Edison conceded, the line was constructed underground, yes, at increased cost to Boston Edison, but think what it had cost the townspeople in time and legal expenses to fight off this encroachment on public lands and what an eyesore it would have been had the overhead construction been completed." Story number 17, Turning Points. My kids probably will not agree with me on what I'm about to say. I report this from my own point of view, that is, as an observing and interested mother. It has seemed to me that each of our four children has had at least one turning point in their lives that affected them from then on. After Ellen, our oldest, graduated in 1977 from UMass Boston with a bachelor's degree in anthropology with a strong focus on Indian studies, she began working at Acorn Structures in Acton, where she was so successful They offered to put her through architecture school. Though she reported continuing her interest in activities in Indian affairs and the environment, because of her many skill areas, Bill and I suggested that she take advantage of an aptitude testing service called at that time Johnson O'Connor, now renamed Human Engineering Lab. We said we would pay for it. The idea was that on three consecutive mornings, the client would be tested for 11 quite specific abilities including, for example, spatial perception, finger dexterity, vocabulary, musical ability, etc. Scores would be compiled. And on the fourth morning, the counselor would give advice as to which professions matched the client's particular profile of abilities. After the fourth morning, we spoke with Ellen, who reported, Well, you've just wasted $350. Guess what professions they said I'd be happiest in? Engineering and surgery. Bah! We encouraged her to visit MIT or other engineering schools talk with her brother, Paul, who was an engineer. Do some research. Don't give up on the idea. Several months later, she called all full of eagerness and enthusiasm. Guess what? I've enrolled in UMass Amherst to study environmental engineering. We were thrilled. The rest is history. Ellen completed her doctorate and is a highly successful engineer succeeding in a male-dominated profession and has become a specialist in environmental missions including the remediation of groundwater supplies contaminated with m t b e methyl tert butyl ether she was the lead editor of a 650-page book on the subject published in 2003 by Amherst Scientific Publishers. Her thoroughly researched book on climate change and other related environmental problems, entitled Our Earth, Our Species, Ourselves, How to Thrive While Creating a Sustainable World, won four book awards after publication in 2017. Paul, when he was a junior in Wayland High School, decided to enter a work-study program which was designed not only to give students experience in the workforce, that is, real life, a skill which could not be taught in the classroom, a few credits towards graduation, and a very small income to boot. It was a good way for students to gain technical or mechanical knowledge without having to go to vocational school. Paul went to work after school and on weekends for Richard Lindstrom, a businessman who lived on the other side of Wayland and who was remodeling his home. Paul learned a great deal while working for Mr. Lindstrom about building, carpentry, designing a plan for construction and following through to completion on that plan, going to work no matter what the weather. He already had mechanical prowess, genes inherited from Grandpa Moyer, who was a tinkerer and builder from childhood. But from Mr. Lindstrom and later Jerry McGonagall in Sudbury, Paul learned skills that have served him well throughout life. The summer after Paul graduated from high school, he put all these skills and knowledge to work for us. He designed and built a small office for Bill that sat some 50 feet away from our main house at 36 Hampshire Road, Wayland. He drew the design, listed and ordered the materials necessary, contracted for work he could not do himself, pouring the concrete for the slab floor, for example, paid his workers, oversaw the whole nine yards. It was a small building, true, but the experience of seeing a construction job through from the bare ground up must have been helpful in his later work as a civil engineer. There can't be a whole lot of difference between that experience and designing and overseeing the construction of a bridge. Differences in scale, of course, but probably not a lot of difference in methodology. I'm guessing here, of course. Paul went on to do construction work for quite a few Boston Symphony families for Brownie Parker and other Wayland residents. I must mention a very small turning point in Paul's life, I think, which preceded this high school work story program. Paul's handwriting after the class moved from print to script was pretty atrocious. But one day in junior high school, I'd say, I noticed telephone messages and the like were now printed and were not in the previous rather juvenile script. His writing from that moment forward was beautiful, completely legible, and morphed into the kind of writing you see on architects' drawings. I wonder if the printing didn't help propel him into an engineering career where printed writing seems to be the norm. Just a question that only Paul can answer. When Fred was about 14, he had been studying piano with me for seven years, and I thought it was time for a change, if not of instrument, at least of teacher. He was a frequent performer in workshops held by Camsa, Concord Area Music School Association, of which I was a member. Master classes were occasionally offered, and I signed him up to play one Saturday morning for Theodore Letvin, a well-known teacher at New England Conservatory. At the master class, Ted stood behind the performing student singing along, coaching the student along. It was like a living metronome in a way because there was no turning back or stumbling, the sort of thing that is endemic to student performances if the student is left to his or her own devices. I was enthralled with the chemistry that seemed to exude from his teaching style and the forcefulness of his presence. On our way home from the master class, I asked Fred if he would like to explore the possibility of studying with Ted. After all, mothers aren't supposed to be good teachers for their children and we've been at it for quite a while." Fred said rather noncommittally, "'I guess so. So I called Ted, arranged for a time for a lesson, consultation we should call it. Ted was agreeable, and we showed up at his house in Brookline just off Harvard Street. Ted, in his undershirt, greeted us amiably, a cigarette dangling from one hand, and a cloud of cigarette smoke encircling his large frame. Fred played. I eavesdropped from the kitchen, the room to which parents and sundry others were abandoned. After forty five minutes or so, Ted invited me to join them in the living room, where the big Steinway reigned. He lit a fresh cigarette, inhaled deeply, and said, Fred. I know just what you're thinking. You're wondering if you want to do this thing or not. Continue playing the piano. I tell you what, you go home and think about this and give me a call. If you really think you'd like to get serious about your music, I'll be glad to teach you. So we thanked him very much and said our goodbyes. Fred was thoughtful on the way home Ted was wise this was a decision Fred had to make on his own no moms allowed a few days later fred announced well i've decided to go on with piano and mr letvin has agreed to teach me starting in september he's asked me to bring to him beethoven's piano sonata in a flat major opus 26 the entire book two of Churney exercises and Bach two-part inventions all from memory. (laughs) And so Fred's piano flight took off in earnest. That summer, Fred practiced in our little shed at Tanglewood like a madman. By the end of the summer, his hands had grown so much that he could hold a basketball in each of them and now could span a tenth on the keyboard, a pretty necessary skill for any really serious pianist. And he had accomplished the assignments given to him. Amazing. An obvious turning point for Anne was the midnight moment at JFK airport, May 5, 1968, when a social worker who had accompanied her on the long trip from Seoul, Korea, via Seattle, to New York, handed over to Bill and me a warm bundle wrapped in a pink and brown coat, which was adorned with good luck charms, no doubt affixed to her coat by caring persons, wishing her a happy new life in America." Are you the Moyers? the social worker asked. Uh-huh, Bill answered in a daze. Here, she said, and transferred to us two-and-a-half-year-old a spelled capital A-E, capital N-I, the little girl we had waited for since not too long after she was born. The social worker disappeared into the crowd and we turned our attention to the newest member of our family. Our lives and hers from that moment would be forever changed. Of course, Annie had little control over that turning point in her life. Another turning point over which she did have complete control, however, occurred just after her graduation from Wayland High School. We gave Annie the option to live at home if she wanted to attend college or she could move out of the house and be on her own. The other children had all opted for college, so this issue had not come up. Annie did not want to go on to higher education and decided to move out. Annie has been virtually on her own ever since. She has worked at a number of jobs the longest lived of them being her years as a waitress at Cheers, the basement pub on Beacon Street made famous by the television program of the same title. She was excellent at her job, could remember orders of large gatherings without writing anything down, even when people changed their orders. It reminded me of a fabulous waitress our family sought out, at a restaurant in Beverly Hills when we lived out in California. She later worked at Mario's in Southbridge, and that's when the carrying of trays became so painful to her, she sought medical advice only to learn she had fibromyalgia and would have to give up waitressing. Since then, she's worked at other occupations with good success. I have never heard her express regret at having made the decision not to go to college. I have to mention a unique and loving quality Annie has that I've never known to such an extent in any other person, and that is empathy. She instinctively knows what people are feeling and thinking. It is a precious gift You don't get that with a college education. Story number 18, an incident in Cologne. November, 1986. When Fred was in his heyday of worldwide concertizing, I was looking for a European booking manager to help me propel his career even further and on a broader scale than I was able to negotiate. I had managed to create a small tour of radio stations in Germany, which included Cologne, Düsseldorf, Hamburg, and also a visit to one Rolf Zudbrach, a respected international artist manager located in Hamburg. The plan was for Fred to fly to Hamburg and complete some of the radio engagements of the tour, meet with Herr Zudbrach, and then I would fly over to join him so that we could both meet with Herr Zudbrach to determine what we might negotiate in the way of an agreement. I arrived in Hamburg and took a train to the small nearby village in which Zudbrach lived. He met me at the train station, was very cordial, and drove me to his office, which was in his home, for our meeting. We arrived at a suitable agreement, which was, Rolf would have exclusive rights to Fred's European engagements, and though he was very pessimistic about Fred's chances in an increasingly competitive market, he would, as he said, do my best. His English, of course, was impeccable. I took the train back to Hamburg and met Fred after his engagement at the Norddeutscher Rundfunk, North German radio. From Fred's reports, his experiences in Germany were not happy. Despite the fact Fred's grandfather is German, he didn't like the Germans, didn't like their punctiliousness, I guess that's what I'd call it, and their icy demeanor. Fred didn't win any brownie points either, reporting an incident where he wanted the piano in one location on stage and the manager said crisply, Nein, it must be in the exact spot it was placed. Fred was so furious at the lack of respect for his wishes as an artist that he slammed his hand on the lid of the piano in frustration. Ouch! I knew that incident was not going to help him. He also reported that he had visited Rolf Zudbrock the day before, and when Fred knocked on his door, come in, came from within, when Fred entered, there was Rolf sitting in bed, stripped to the waist, and possibly farther. Fred excused himself and moved to another room, probably Rolf's office, where Rolf eventually arrived fully clad. Fred, perhaps, unfortunately, is a very attractive person to people of both sexes and all ages. I've observed firsthand Fred brush off advances from probably gay men with an emphatic, I'm just not that way, which puts an end to those approaches well fred continued his performing tour and our plan was then to meet in cologne where i would proceed back by air to the u.s and he would go on to other places in southern germany we had a lovely visit and meal together in the cologne airport and when it came time for me to check in at the terminal counter we said our goodbyes and fred gathered his bags and headed for the train, which was located about ten minutes' taxi ride away. When I handed my passport and air ticket to the man behind the counter, he looked at the passport and said to me, This is the wrong passport. Can you imagine my horror? Oh, my God. He showed me the passport. It was Fred's, not Mine. Ugh, what to do? Perhaps you could call the American Embassy, the gentleman suggested. But then I would miss my plane to Boston, I protested. Well, I don't know what I can do to help you, he said. You will have to step aside while I wait on these other travelers. And he looked to the next person in line. I gathered myself, passport ticket and luggage and went to sit down to ponder my predicament and try to conjure a solution. It was in this dejected posture that I looked up and saw Fred running toward me, bags in tow. Could there be a more welcome sight in this world? From shaking with bewilderment to fluttering with joy, I changed in an instant. Fred rejoiced as well. I'm so glad I found you. I went to get on the train and for the first time, the very first time when boarding a train in Germany, I was asked for my passport. Of course, you know, it was yours. We swapped passports and he escorted me to the ticket counter where I handed in the proper documents and my ticket. We said our farewells again, Fred proceeded back to catch the next train, and I made it onto the plane back to Boston. No wonder they require arrival at airports two hours in advance for departing travelers. It's for slip-ups like this. The moral of this story is, if you're not traveling alone, And probably even if you are, have your name clearly printed or labeled on the front. Bill and I have followed this practice ever since that misadventure. Story number 19, Plant Book. Paul Green's Plant Book, an alphabet of flowers and folklore Edited by Betsy Green-Moyer and Ken Moore. Photography by Betsy Green-Moyer and Bird Green-Cornwell. Book design by Dorrit Green. Botanical Garden Foundation, Inc., 2005. Preface by Betsy Green-Moyer. This book brings together my passion for wildlife photography and my father Paul Green's writings from the last and one of my favorite of his books, Paul Green's Word Book, An Alphabet of Reminiscence. At his death in 1981, his beloved word book was an unfinished project. Rhoda Wynne, his loyal assistant of 14 years, edited the manuscript, and in 1990, oversaw its publication. The two volumes containing 1,241 pages of words, proverbs, anecdotes, folk remedies, games, expressions, superstitions, ballads, and stories collected during most of his adult life is a veritable lexicon of Southern folklore more specifically of the Cape Fear Valley in North Carolina, where he grew up. Among the entries are several hundred referring specifically to plants, shrubs, and trees native to North Carolina. I hoped to call from the word book those entries referring to native flora and to publish a separate book illustrated with my own photographs, similar to the displays on the walls of the Paul Green Cabin on the grounds of the North Carolina Botanical Garden. Ken Moore, recently retired assistant director of the garden, agreed to work with me to provide the taxonomy and botanical notes and to guide me through the terrain of North Carolina in search of wildflowers. I have adhered as faithfully as possible to the text of the original word book, but have rearranged the sentences so that the entries generally follow a common format, beginning with Paul Green's botanical descriptions, followed by folk remedies or usages. His personal reminiscences are in italics. In the case of double entries, for example, Arbutus and Trailing Arbutus, I have combined the texts under one entry, in this case under Trailing Arbutus. About the photos, many were taken at the North Carolina Botanical Garden in Chapel Hill during 10 photographic expeditions to the Cape Fear Valley, home to my father for most of his life. Some images are close-ups of a particular aspect of a plant, tree, or shrub, usually the flower. Some show the full plant, others a clump or field. The names of plants are Paul Green's. In some cases, these are not the names by which the plants are most commonly known today. However, out of respect for his personal experience and knowledge, I have used his entry designations. For example, twin bluebells are more commonly known as wild petunias. Punctuation marks, commas, apostrophes, etc. generally have been left as is since their presence or absence contributes to the flow and the colloquial quality of this narrative. The reader should note that he or she assumes complete responsibility for any ill effects that may be experienced by trying some of the remedies and concoctions mentioned in the plant book.